in this new series called Faith in Times of Fear. You know, you can live life one of two ways. You can either live faith-filled or you can live fear-filled. And there's a lot that is happening in our country and our world today that has created enormous amounts of fear. And uh, the thought of, well, what is our country going to look like in 20 years from now? And what's the world going to look like 20 years from now? Because of all the events that are happening around our globe. You know, we live in a time where there are more marriage seminars and books than ever before, but yet the divorce rate is still just as high as it has ever been. We live in a time where there are more psychiatrists than ever before, but yet there are also more suicides than ever before. We live in a time where there's more financial counseling that is available to people, but yet we live with ever-increasing debt. We have more income, less giving, more addiction programs, but yes, more, more addicts. We have um, community organizations, but less transformation. We have more people living in fear, I think, than probably in a long, long time, if not ever, if ever before, rather than being faith-driven. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, why is this happening? What's the escalating process that's going on? And how do we confront it? How do we stand up against it? How do we navigate our lives day in and day out on the basis of everything that's happening? Now, we have been captured and encapsulated for the last three years over COVID, a pandemic, right? It was a, a disease that was worldwide and taking the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. But there are more than just that pandemic facing our country in the here and now and in our lives on a day-in and day-out basis. And I'm just going to rattle off five of them. There are actually more than this, but these are things that I thought about. Number one is the pandemic of depression. Since the lockdowns were sanctioned by our government, the suicide rate is skyrocketing, not just among adults, but also among children. And according to the Mayo Clinic... Um, these escalations in suicides will not be ending anytime soon because it just continues to skyrocket and we're really symptoms of stress and anxiety and depression and uh, insomnia since the pandemic, according to their surveys, just continues to tick itself up, notch itself up. There's the pandemic of what I want to call distrust. We are at the highest levels of distrusting anyone, whether it be institutions, uh, the government, schools, especially parents with their board of educations and um, media, science, follow the science, don't follow the science, uh, government, there's a huge distrust in government. We thought government wasn't going to be our savior and going to make life so much better for us, but we found out that that just is actually is not true. And so this brings huge ramifications as to how you're going to relate to somebody around you who has total different ideology about life than you do. And so there's distrust. There is the pandemic of division. This is one of the most divided times in our country and even in churches. Everything from Black Lives Matters to defund the police to immigration to the very fabric of the founding of our nation, there is a deep rift and a deep divide. And now freedom of speech and diverse opinions are strictly forbidden. Your voice will either be shamed or silenced through cancel culture or um, you will be labeled with some kind of derogatory term that will cause you to kind of back up and back down from what it is that you feel like is the truth. And then there's the pandemic of defamation. 
And what I mean by that is social media has become, it's like uh, taking a, a raw piece of meat and throwing it into a lion's den. You float something out on your social media and there will be a horde of people who will vehemently disagree with you and they will state it in ways and terms that you will probably make you blush, even if you're a person who cusses, okay? It's just going to happen, all right? It's just, uh, it, I mean, vicious, viciousness that's happening in social media, which is causing a lot of people to cancel their social media, moving on to other forms because of just the level of no restraint in damaging somebody else's re reputation. Then the pandemic of disorientation. Our culture is changing so rapidly we cannot keep up with it. And so we don't even have time to get oriented to what's happening today until tomorrow something else is like off the charts. Now, there's a thing in psychology called um, complex grief. Complex grief happens when certain things happen in your life. So somebody dies, and you have that grief, and then another tragedy and another event, and it just keeps compounding itself on top of you, and you don't even have time to sort through this process of grieving before another one hits you and another one hits you. And that's the way our society is. Things are changing so rapidly in our culture, and we'll discover why that's happening in the weeks to come, that we don't have time to orient ourselves to where we are in the present, let alone where we're going to be, you know, uh, again, 20 years from now. And so what we are facing today is very similar to what Peter was facing in his day and time all the way back when. Peter was in the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire was, I mean, it was the uh, world's superpower. It had the strongest economy, uh, the, the vastest um, military, but yet Rome, over time, began to deteriorate and to disintegrate, not because enemies attacking them from the outside, but from what was happening inside their own nation, their own empire, much like in America. If America falls and crumbles, it's not because of the military might of those around us as much as it could possibly happen just because we are deteriorating from within and there's such deep division and see, such deep rifts in our society. The question becomes, can we can we heal from this? Can we, can we uh, restore what we have lost over, uh, over time? And so despite all of its you know, diversity, Rome was deeply, deeply divided. And right in the middle of that empire springs up a, a brand new movement called Christianity. And so now the Christian believers in that day and time have to learn how can we live according to the kingdom of God and maintain our values and our culture in this culture we find ourselves in that is diametrically opposed to what the kingdom of God stands for? And so Peter addresses this issue. The question on the table was, how should the church live in the midst of a deeply divided nation without compromising its identity or its way of life? And so um, Peter writes this letter, and uh, in essence, he says, there's a lot of division going on out there, but let's not let it happen in here. There's a lot of opposition happening out there, but let's not bring it in here, because we are now members of God's kingdom, and God's kingdom has a king, and you're not it. Jesus is the king over the kingdom. 
And that kingdom has certain values. That kingdom has a certain culture. That kingdom has a certain mission that you and I have been called to be a part of. And so what Peter's going to say in, in light of what's you know, disintegrating around us, how do we maintain this movement of God that is happening right in the midst of the Roman Empire? And Peter is one of those guys who's just likable. I mean, Peter was one of the disciples who constantly made mistakes, uh, always, you know, was saying things without thinking about it. Like one time he told Jesus, you know, Jesus talks about going to the cross, says, oh, no, 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 Jesus, I'll not let that happen. I'll die for you before that happens. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Now, you know it's going to be a bad day in your life when Jesus calls you Satan. And he says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. But we like Peter because Peter is so much like us, right? We just don't always get it right. We're not perfect. I mean, Peter would be the kind of guy that I could bring to my house and we could sit down and watch twice, not once, but twice, all the episodes of Tiger King. I mean, that's just the kind of guy he was. Not that I've done that. Once, I couldn't get it through the second time. So... The conversation uh, uh, that's going on out there is, as Peter says, man, let's, uh, let's not that bring that in here because the problems are out there. Let's not bring the problems in here. Let's let Jesus work in and through us so that we can help the world outside of these walls, that we can help them solve their problems. Not forcefully, not judgmentally, not in a condemning fashion, but by showing people the love of Christ and then sharing why what Jesus has to offer is so much superior to what the world has to offer you. And so this is what God's calling is upon our life, is that the church has been planted right in the middle of another kingdom, and that is the kingdom of Satan. All right. So this world, when Adam and Eve sinned against God... They handed over the, the deed to planet earth over to Satan. And so the Bible says that this is his little kingdom that he has uh, rulership over, ownership and authority, at least for a time being, and that the whole world is under its, its power and authority. But then there's a rival kingdom that came along called the kingdom of God that Jesus ushered in. And so these two rival kingdoms are playing out here on planet Earth, and you and I are a part of what is happening between those two kingdoms. And so here is the essence of Peter's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. It was kind of a circular letter that would go to multiple churches. Chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God Stand fast in it. He wants to encourage you. To encourage somebody means to put courage in them. In other words, Peter says, I know that the empire of Rome is disintegrating and things are going to get far worse because Nero was coming to power and Nero would be one of the major persecutors of the Christian church. He would torch people to light up his, his, his festivities. He would feed people to the lion's den. He was horrible and horrendous against the church. Martyrdom was skyrocketing. And yet Peter says, I want to encourage you. I want to build courage inside of you because fear is so contagious, but so is courage. 
So let's starve our fear. Let's feed our courage because we are facing uncertain times and therefore we need to stand courageously as kingdom citizens here on planet earth and fulfill the calling and the mission God has placed upon our lives. Now God's not interested in carrying out somebody else's program. The church is the means by which God and God alone accomplishes his kingdom purposes. Do you know that the human body has an immune system And if your immune system begins to malfunction, then your body is susceptible to certain diseases. For example, uh, a few months ago, I was diagnosed with cancer. And so everybody has cancer cells in their bodies, but your immune system, if it's not compromised, fights off those cancer cells. When your immune system becomes compromised, it no longer can fight off the cancer cells, and so those bad cells begin to overtake the good cells and begins to invade your body in a very powerful way. Well, this is kind of way society. Society has an immune system that protects it from destruction of sin, and the immune system that God has designed is the church of Jesus Christ, is that you and I are to bring a little bit of heaven to earth So that when people look at us, they get a taste of what God is really like. They get a taste of what it means to experience God in a very positive way. So as God is transforming our hearts and our lives into the image of Christ, and he's developing the fruit of the Spirit in us, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, self-control, and all of these attributes, these characteristics, when pe- what's the purpose of fruit? It's not for me, it's for, it's for you. So that when we engage with one another, even though there might be divisiveness, there might be division, you and I have the opportunity as kingdom citizens to change the atmosphere of the situation by bringing the fruit of the spirit to play in whatever is happening so that people can experience what authentic love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness what that looks like because they have engaged with us we've brought a little bit of heaven to earth so that the world tastes of God and know that God is good and he is more desirable than anything this world has to offer The world needs the church to be the church. What it doesn't need is for the church to be like the world. We have nothing to offer them if that's the case. But yet that is the downhill slide we're seeing in many churches. We see churches big and small that are absolutely being rocked on social media and all kinds of media because of the fallenness of pastors and, you know, the the greed and the deception and all these things that puts a black mark on Christianity and so that everybody assumes that every church is just like that one, especially the high-profile churches like Hillsong. So we need to be the church of Jesus Christ. That's what makes us attractive, not like being in the world. So I think if that's going to happen... If we're going to accomplish our God-given mission, there are four things we need, right? First of all, we need a greater clarity in life, a greater clarity in life. So what does Peter say? He says in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, 
Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. I want you to note two things. Some of your translation says God's elect. It may say another word. Um, so God's elect and those who are scattered, I call those God's exiles. So here's what Peter is saying to us. What he is saying to the churches in his day and time, what God would say to us in our day and time, is that if you're a part of the elect, that means God foreknew you, which literally means not just foreknowledge of God knowing all things. It means that he foreloved you. Before you were ever created, before the foundation of this world was ever laid, God in his mind and in his heart, he already loved you because he knew he was going to create you. And he created you for the purpose of relationship. But what happened in the Garden of Eden is that when sin invaded the world, three things happened that day. It, Adam and Eve died immediately in their spirit. Their spirit was the part of them that connected them to God, which is why they had to leave the Garden of Eden. So they were disconnected from their creator. They died progressively in their soul, their mind, will, and emotions. They started thinking erroneously. They started feeling feelings they never had, like fear and, you know, uh, hurt and pain. They, they, you know, Adam and Eve started quarreling with one another. And so now all of a sudden dissension happens, come, springs up in their relationship, and they died ultimately in their body. What God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, has come into the world to reverse that. So that through Christ, you and I could experience life where there was death. We came in this world spiritually dead. God wants to give us spiritual life. He wants to reverse the sin's effects on our mind and on our, on our, our emotions and on our will. It's the battle of the mind. The way you think affects the way you feel, which affects the way you act. And then God ultimately will resurrect this body once it ceases to function on planet Earth because God did not create you for time. He created you for eternity, and you will live for eternity. And so if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the assurance that you will spend eternity with Christ, and one day God will resurrect this body. And even if this body is filled with scars from sin's effect upon it in this world because you've had surgeries or you've had accidents. When God recreates that body and enters into the presence of God, it will no longer have one single scar on it because God will have recreated it the way he intended it to be. The only person in heaven with scars is Jesus to remind us that the only reason we're there is because of his unconditional love and grace. So God set his love on you, and because God set his love upon you, he predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the only way that he could do that is to draw you into that relationship. So he chose you, he chose you to extend his call of salvation to you. Now, I don't know about you, but some of you in school, you didn't get chose, chosen very much for basketball or baseball or any kind of sport. Let's just face it, you, you weren't very good at it. Nobody wanted you, right? You're the last person. Oh, we got to take him? Oh, okay, well, we have to. Do you know the creator of the heavens and the earth chose you? And when God chooses you, he orchestrates an intersection between you and the spirit of God to call you into that relationship. God moved me from 126 Mahalan Street to 
1139 West Main Street so that he could move me out of where I was to where I came to be, right beside a family who had a son my age, who invited me to church to play softball. And through that connection, God all of a sudden intersected my heart and my life because he had chosen me. And the Holy Spirit drew me into that relationship with Jesus. And he says, those whom he has chosen, those who receive Christ, now you are therefore justified immediately, once and for all, an action that says all of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The only reason you and I can enter into heaven is not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And you can only wear one garment, and it is the clothing of Christ. And we enter into heaven in the clothing of Christ, and he's indwelled us with his Holy Spirit to empower us and to teach us how to walk in the Spirit, how to live in the Spirit, how to be led by the Spirit, how to reverse what sin's effects had brought to bear upon our mind and our will and our emotions and ultimately our body. And then one day he says you will be glorified when God takes that body into the presence and there of God and reunites it with your soul and spirit and completes the salvation process in your life. We, we are a part of the elect. Listen, a lot of people want heaven, but they don't want anything that would do with Jesus. In order to get there, there ain't no other way there, right? There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. We are the elect, and because we are the elect, guess what God did not do the day you were saved? He didn't take you to heaven. He left you here on earth. Why? Because now you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. You are a citizen of the kingdom. You are an ambassador of the kingdom, a representative of the kingdom. And God wants to use you as an exile, which changes my mentality towards the world around me. In other words, this world is not our true home. It is temporary at best. So stop trying to make it your ultimate home. It's just not going to happen. And so uh, this means that, hey, if, if I don't get everything I want in life, it's okay. I, I, I don't have to have X, Y, and Z to live a full and happy and fulfilled life, right? And as an exile, you belong to a different kingdom with a different set of values. And we, we don't want to get too attached to this world. And so even the things that I own, I, I view them differently. I do not view them as mine, and I'm going to accumulate as much as I possibly can in this world for me and build bigger and bigger barns, and he who has the most toys at the end of life wins. That is not the motto of the kingdom. The motto is, how can I leverage everything God has given me, time, talents, and treasures, everything I own and possess, how can I leverage it for the purpose of the kingdom? That's why Jesus says, man, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Right? Moth and rust, can't, nothing can attach you. Thieves can't steal it this is because this is not your ultimate home. This is where you're going to end up, and you're going to be rewarded for what you have sent ahead of you into God's kingdom. And so you ever gone into an airport, and you have a layover, and you went to one of those really expensive stores in the airport? Like one of the things you notice that is never in one of those stores, shopping carts. Because nobody can afford to buy that much stuff in those overinflated, overpriced stores. 
Right? Why? Because that's not what you're staying. You're just laying over for a short period of time. You might buy something to get you by for that period of time, but you know that you don't need any more than that because that's this is not where you're, you're staying. This is not where you're camping out in life. You're heading to another destination. Well, this is the way we view the world. This is the way we view our lives. Again, two kingdoms, two cultures. There's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Satan. There's hell's cultures. There's heaven culture. And if I live by the flesh, the Bible says I bring hell up. If I live by the spirit of God, I bring heaven down. And so as a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to learn how to live my life in tune with the Holy Spirit so that I am bringing heaven down and not hell up. Listen, wherever there is love and unity, God is at work. Wherever there is division and animosity, Satan is work at work. So if there's division and animosity in your household, guess who's operating? You're probably operating in the flesh and not the spirit because you're allowing hell to come up rather than heaven to come down. Now, it's not that we don't have you know, uh, arguments as husbands and wives or we don't have friction in relationships. The question is, how will we approach those things? We approach it on the basis of what Jesus has taught us to do. And so my point is simply this. Stop trying to make this world heaven. It's not. Stop trying to change people. You can't. And we are to bring a little piece of heaven here on earth as kingdom citizens. And that is really the clarity that we need in life. And number two is the greater comprehension of salvation. He goes on to say in verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen, heaven doesn't start when you get out there somewhere. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, heaven began the day you made that decision. There is a amount of heaven you can experience on earth, not the ultimate heaven, not everything that God has in store for us, but there's a lot you can experience in the, the here and now. And so God he mentions the Trinity here. The Father came up with the plan of salvation. It was birthed out of his heart. Jesus' son came in obedience to die in our place so that through him we could have this relationship with the Father. And in the, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he implemented this process. Jesus says, unless the Spirit draws you to me, you will never be drawn. You'll never come on your own. And then when we come and we receive, we are indwelt by the Spirit, and so we don't have this Savior who looks at our problems down here, and he's way out there somewhere, uh, you know, kind of like at a distance. No, he says he walks with us, he indwells us through the person of the Holy Spirit, so everything you and I experience in this life, he's experiencing it right along with us. Everywhere I go, I take the Holy Spirit with me. I can't say, hey, Holy Spirit, I'm about to go do something that I know you would not approve of. Sit over here on the couch. I'm going to go do my thing, and then I'll come back and retrieve you. Doesn't work that way. But what he says about this salvation is that it is a living hope. Our salvation is not about patching us up. It's about giving us a whole new life. 
It's about giving us a whole new spirit that lives inside of us, that changes us fundamentally from the inside out. A living hope. And this is what the world needs now is hope. Because when you lose hope, you give up. And when you give up, you give in. Even as a believer, if you give up and give in, what Satan dangles in front of you will be a, you know, it'll be a temptation. It's a foothold into your life that becomes a stronghold, a way of thinking, a pattern of living, and then it becomes a death blow to you at some point in your walk with God, right? So he's going to destroy something in you, around you, or through you if you're not careful, And so your hope has to be in someone and something that is bigger than us, something that is bigger than everything else, and his name's Jesus. This is why my hope comes in Christ, not in what the world has to offer me. Here's what the world has to offer me. Pain, suffering, hardship, heartache. I mean, there are good things. There are joyful things. There are mountaintop experiences there are some beautiful sights in this, you know, even in our country. If you've ever seen the Grand Canyon, I mean, you just stand back in awe of, of the Grand Canyon. You can take a thousand pictures of the Grand Canyon. Cannot even begin to capture the beauty of it all. And so we have the good, bad, and the ugly. And what we need, you know, everybody, as I've said last week, everybody wants to live on the mountaintop, but you can't live there forever. And the only way you get to the mountaintop is to travel through deep, dark valleys in order to reside there. So who's going to usher you through the valleys in life? Who's going to usher you through when everything around you is caving in on you and you don't have the strength to do it on your own? And every time you try to fix something, you just make it worse. And every time you try to bypass something, it just never works out. And so he says, we need this living hope. And he says, not only that, we have this permanent inheritance. It's rock solid. Nothing happens on earth that falls into the category of this is the final chapter. He says about this inheritance that you can't destroy it, you can't defile it, you can't diminish it, you cannot even displace it. That's reserved for you. I remember going to a hotel one time, and it's late at night, and so my wife and I, it's our honeymoon night. All right, so we're heading to the Poconos in Pennsylvania for our honeymoon resort, but we had to stay in a hotel on our way to get there. And uh, I made reservations. Get there, and they say, we have no such reservation. We're booked. We're full. We got nothing left. We do have a hotel. They called ahead and said, hey, we found your hotel. So, you know, it's late at night. It's like, like 11, 12 o'clock. We find this place. It's in a really seedy area of town, and we don't even know where we are. And we walk inside the hotel room, and it was so bad that the bed and every piece of furniture in that room was bolted to the floor. Like, who comes to the hotel and carries off their bed or, you know, carries out the table or the TVs? And so when we got up the next day and we began to get a grip on our surroundings, we began to understand why it was bolted to the floor because this was not a very safe place to be. And so God says, listen, Jesus made a deposit in you called the Holy Spirit so that this inheritance that you have in Christ will never be taken away. You'll not get to heaven and say, well, no room for you. Uh, we don't have your reservation. 
Uh, no, your, your reservation is on the door of where it is that you're going to reside. But that's not the only part of the inheritance. Our inheritance is free through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But we have another inheritance in the kingdom. And that is what we will be doing on planet earth when Jesus establishes his thousand year reign and rule when the kingdom comes to earth and then what we will be doing when we get to heaven. We have this misconception that, hey, I received Christ into my life and I just kind of lived for myself the rest of my life, just did my own thing and, you know, when the life is over, I'll just give Jesus my leftovers, whatever those leftovers are, and he, he's just going to make, that's good enough, right? I, I just got a place in heaven, that's all I care about. That's not the way it works. Not everybody's on equal footing in heaven. Not everybody has the same role and responsibilities in heaven. Your roles and responsibilities are determined by your faithfulness here on planet earth, which is why you and I will stand at the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine whether or not we're going to heaven or hell, but to determine if our works burn up or if they end up being precious stones and, and gold. I don't know about you, but... Um, I don't want to get in heaven and say, well, Jesus, you know, I sent my leftovers ahead of you. I hope that's good enough, right? We are God's ambassadors. We are God's representatives. Jesus gave us a mission to make disciples. God has shaped you, given you a spiritual gift. He's given you a heart. He's given you uh, abilities and passions and personality, and he's given you experiences, good, pain, and otherwise. He has uniquely shaped you to do the works that he has prepared in advance for you to do. Remember, that's Ephesians 2.10, which came before that was what? For by grace we have been saved through faith. It was all about salvation through grace in Christ, but it didn't end there. God didn't say, well, now just do whatever you want. No, he says, I have a work for you to do in order to fulfill the mission that I've left you to do. And I've uniquely shaped you for that mission in your own individual life. And if you will remain faithful to that, I will be faithful to reward you throughout all of eternity. In essence, anticipating Christ's future kingdom should change the way that we live now, right? If a doctor said to you, hey, you got a year to live, how would that affect you? How would that impact you? Would you change some things? Would you alter some things? More than likely, you probably would. I suspect you'd change a lot of things. And so your knowledge, new knowledge of the future would greatly affect how you act in the present. You know, I, I, one of the things I, I love about when couples are getting married uh, there's a lot of tension that goes on up until the wedding day because you're trying to get all the wedding you know, stuff together. And the closer you get to the date of the wedding, the more hectic it becomes. There's so many things that need to be done at the last minute. But one of the beautiful things is on the wedding day, it's like the bride and the groom, especially after the ceremony is over and it's reception time, it's just like they're like, oh, man, all the tension and all the stress, you don't even remember it anymore. This is what life's going to be like, is that when you leave this world and enter into God's kingdom, it's going to be like, ah, because you know what you enter into? What the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the reason you're there is because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and you've completed your work here on earth, and he's got rewards in store for you in heaven. He has roles and responsibilities that we are going to have 
for all of eternity. And these things aren't going to be things like we don't like to do. He's going to tap into what you love to do. He's going to tap into what you're already gifted to do. He's going to give. And you don't even get tired doing them. And there's not even all the stress that we experience in this lifetime because of our position in Christ. And he says he gives us divine protection. That does not mean that we do not experience hardship and suffering or headaches on planet earth. God gave me a vision two years ago, and in a dream, and he said, Jesus was standing on the seashore. I've shared this with you before, and he reached out his hand to me, and he says, I want you to walk out into the deep with me. Will you do that? And I said, absolutely, I will. Little did I know what that would entail, walking in the deep. So here I am two years later, I have been diagnosed with bladder cancer. And now I'm in chemo and all that that entails. And, you know, you, you get chemo and then I get this new Lasta, which is like a, a medicine they give you after your second chemo to stimulate your bone marrow to produce white blood cells because my white blood cells get, get low and you have... Uh, side effects from chemo, you have side effects from that. My leg got numb and I, my hips and my back was just like just excruciating pain and I took the pain meds and they weren't cutting it. And it's like 2 o'clock in the morning and, and I'm thinking, oh God, you know, this, I, I don't know if I can take this anymore and I'm going to have to go to the ER again. And many of you know the complications I've had with kidney stones in the midst of all this stuff. And, and, and so I, I'm up at 2 in the morning and I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, God, you know what? If, if you're going to kill me, can we we just do it tonight? <laughs> I've faced death and stared into its face, but it doesn't scare me anymore. I don't know how much long, how longer I have. I have no guarantee. You have no guarantee of how much time you have in this world. But once you stare death in the face and it scares you no more, Satan has absolutely no leverage over you because it is the greatest tool that he uses against the world. Their fear of it. And so there are two words that you need to hang on to, and it's the word accept and trust. You have to accept the mystery of hardship and suffering and misfortune and mistreatment. You can't try to explain it. You don't you, you, you can't always figure it out. God doesn't always give you the answer. So you have to learn to accept what you cannot possibly control and deliberately trust God to protect you by the power of his Holy Spirit from the very moment to the dawning of eternity. Listen, my life and your life will not end one nanosecond before God declares it to end. Not one. Now, you can play God and take your own life, but God says he's already determined the length of your days on planet Earth. You're not going to change that. He's already said it's appointed unto man to die once. You're not going to change that. You're not going to miss that appointment. Every, every single one of us, God has laid out the plan, and he's calling us to be a part of that plan so that I can live. I have a 
date of my birth and the date of my death and the dash in between is my life here on planet earth and I live it for the kingdom of God to fulfill God's calling upon my life and the giftedness that he has given me and when my life ends I enter into eternity and my inheritance is what? It's permanent. It is there. God has divinely protected me until the day he called me home and the same is true for you. You got to get that in your heart. Otherwise, you'll live in fear rather than in faith. Here's the next one greater comfort in life's trials. Peter goes on to say, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had suffered grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor And when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible, glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter says about our trials, they are temporary, they are necessary, they are distressing, they come in multiple forms, and it's like receiving mail in your house that just says occupant. All you have to do is be an occupant of planet earth, and you're going to experience trials in life, right? So we have to learn how to remain under them so that they accomplish their intended purpose. Um, there are a lot of people in heaven who can never show you a seminary degree or their uh, college certificate in Bible and theology. But I want to tell you, because of what they have walked through by way of trials in this life, they have a huge degree in what I call neology. They got on their face before God, and they allowed God to iron that all out in their life as they are progressing through these trials while they're keeping their eyes riveted and focused upon their shepherd. And every time God took them through those deep, dark trials, he was building something inside of them. I mean, the Apostle Paul... Uh, he was a great guy, had all kinds of degrees, but God gave him a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God to three times to remove it, and what did God say? Nope, not doing it. My grace will be sufficient for you, for in your time of need, in your time of weakness, my power shall be demonstrated. And so what he was saying is, Paul, I will not change the circumstances, but I will change you in the middle of the circumstances so that no matter what you face in life, whatever trial you find yourself in, you will not back down, you will not fall down, you will not digress, you will remain strong in your faith. In fact, it will strengthen your faith all the more. Then you have Peter who comes along, who's not an educated man, who was a fisherman called by Jesus, but Peter did and was schooled in neology. And Peter would one day lose his life as a martyr. He will be crucified, but he didn't want to be crucified like his Lord Jesus. He says, if you're going to crucify me, you're going to crucify me upside down. 
all of the disciples were martyred with the exception of the apostle John who was thrown into a quadrant of boiling oil thrust out on the island of Patmos where he received a download from God called the book of Revelation. My point is simply this, is that, listen, when God is ready to do something in you and through you and reveal something to you, oftentimes he puts us in a very hard and difficult place in our lives. And it is at this point, you do not want to allow Satan to come and have a seat at your table because what often happens in the lives of believers is that when they find themselves struggling in their faith, struggling in their walk with God, thousand questions, no answers, God's in silent mode, they need a resurrection, Satan sits down and gives them an ulterior motive on God's part and an ulterior plan on his part to bypass what it is that God is seeking to do in our lives. And he speaks into our minds and we just allow that stuff to mull over and over. Listen, there are two things God is doing in your trials. He's either forging your faith or he is crafting your character. But what the Bible says and what Peter's going to say to us, because he's going to deal a lot with suffering in his book, is that the blessings of God will outweigh the burdens of this world if you will remain under them. He says he's going to purify your faith, your character. That's why he says it's like precious gold. If you want pure gold, you put it in the heat of the refiner's fire and all the impurities rise to the top and you skim them off and you have pure gold, which is of great worth and value. If we as the church of Jesus Christ are going to remain faithful to the kingdom of God's values and morality and principles, we cannot live in fear. We must live in faith. And the only way you're going to stand up against those who will combat against you because of your faith and your trust and your stance, the only way you'll stand strong is to have your faith purified and made ready for when that happens. Here's the last one. Greater confidence in the gospel. As we wrap this up, he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, search intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Listen, the prophets could see the coming Messiah. They could even see the coming future kingdom beyond the coming of the Messiah. What they could not see is in between, known as the age of grace or the age of the church, which is where you and I live. All right, so he's predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. And so what Peter says is the gospel, the prophets studied it, the Holy Spirit implemented it, the apostles preached it, the angels stand in awe of it, and the church now stands with the calling to take that gospel into the world, into the culture in which we live. So I want to leave you with three resolutions based on what Jesus said to the church at Sardis when he wrote a letter to them, and here's what he said. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains, and is about to die. Remember what you have received and obey it. 
as I look back and reflect over the last 35 years of ministry and where the church was there and where we are today and the trajectory it seems to be heading on, I just wonder if Jesus were to make his assessment in our day and time, you appear to be alive, you've got all kinds of concerts, you've got all kinds of lights going on, you've got all kinds of activity happening, but in reality, there is deadness in the building. And so if this is not what we want to be characteristic of us or any other church, I think there's three resolutions we need to make. Number one is be resolved to be gospel-driven in your life and in your witness. There's a lot of talk about social justice, feeding people, helping people. Listen, we need to help people. We need to feed uh, those who are hurting. We need to bring justice for those who are, who are suffering injustice. We need to do a lot of things as the body of Christ to bring heaven down to earth so that they taste of the goodness of God and know that he is good. But if you don't include the gospel with it, I can feed a person for the rest of their life, but if they die without Jesus, they've got no hope. They've got no inheritance. They've got no divine protection. It's not an issue of forcing it upon people. It is simply an issue of having conversations. So we use the word splash. Show people love through serving and, sh and share him. So in our foyer, we have the three circles where we give you a pamphlet that says, listen, this is God's design. Everything outside of God's design is sin. Sin always leads to brokenness. Brokenness always leads to coping mechanism. You've not rubbed shoulders with anyone who does not have brokenness in their life, coping mechanisms where they're trying to deal with that brokenness, and it opens up a door of conversation in many, many different ways. And if God has brought you through some very hard trials that intersect with their lives, this is what Peter is saying. To God be the glory. I know it was a burden on you, but God's going to bless you because, listen, if I'm a young man who grew up in a single-parent home, I know how to talk to guys who grew up in a single-parent home without a father. I'm a person who has diabetes. I know how to talk to the diabetic. I now have cancer. I know how to relate to people with cancer. I see it all the time. I rub shoulders with them all the time. It absolutely breaks my heart. I'm just simply saying if you allow God to redeem the trials, he'll open the doors. We have to be gospel-oriented. Number two, be resolved that you will not bow to the cultural revolution. You know, when Jesus, a woman caught in adultery, was brought to him, Jesus did not lower the standard. He didn't rewrite the rules to make the woman feel better about herself. But what she, he did offer her was grace. He offered her forgiveness. He offered her a new relationship. And then Jesus says, now go and sin no more. Jesus expected a transformation on her life because there was a transformation in her heart. All right, so if there's a true transformation in your heart through the Lord Jesus Christ, I didn't ask you if you, you just walked an aisle, signed a card, went through a baptismal pool. I'm asking you, did you have an authentic relationship with Christ that resulted in a transformation of your heart that is leading to the transformation of your life. You're not perfect, but you're making progress. If that is true, you and I will be the ones called upon to not bow. The cultural revolution is just getting started in our country. And it's going to come hard. It's going to come fast. 
And the question is, what will the church do in response? Peter will talk about that as we journey through his book. And here's the last one is, be resolved to love Christ more passionately and to suffer well for his name's sake. When Judas gave up Jesus over to the high priest, he did so for 30 pieces of silver. In the Old Testament, 30 pieces of silver is what a slave who had been gored beyond repair was worth on the slave market. In essence, what Judas was saying and what the chief priests were saying is, this Jesus, his life isn't worth anything. Let's just snuff him out. And that's what they did. So my question for you is this. Simply, how much is Jesus worth to you? How much is he worth to you? Is he worth following? Jesus said, if you're going to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross every single day and follow me. When you follow somebody, you, can, you come in alignment with them. Where they're going, you're going. You're following them. And the cross is death to independence. I'm not doing this independent of Christ. I'm doing it in conjunction with him. And by the way, you got to do that daily. If Jesus is really as valuable to you as you say he is, my question for you is, are you truly following him and allowing him to use you to make a difference in where you are, where you live, where you work, where you have your existence. This is the call of the church. And Peter's going to say, now let me show you from here on out exactly what needs to happen in order for us to be successful in what God called us to do. Let's bow our heads together. Worship team's going to come. You'll say, now, Greg, you know, that's, that's a pretty hard-hitting message on Easter. Well, this is what the resurrection's all about. Jesus didn't arise from the grave to patch you up. He rose from the grave to make you a brand-new creation in Christ, to breathe into you spiritual life, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, not to grieve him, not to quench him, but to follow him, to walk in his ways. And when you walk in the Spirit, He develops the fruit of the Spirit. And when people come into contact with you, it's like they've had a little taste of heaven because you're allowing the Holy Spirit to exercise Himself through you. So, Father, we thank you for loving us and caring for us. God, I pray for those who are here this morning who've never put their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus. And I pray right now if that you... Lord, you have, you have, you have called, you've, you're choosing them. Lord, that they would sense your Holy Spirit as I did, that there's just a tugging going on in their heart right now, that there's a decision they need to make for Christ that will forever change the direction of their life. And so, Lord, we know that um, you love us and you, you have grace that you just want to spread all over us because it's so great. It's just so gracious. So I pray for those this morning who will open up their hearts and say yes to Jesus to be Savior and Lord of their lives. God, I pray that you will firm that up in their hearts. 
as they take that step of faith and trusting in Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. We thank you for this time together. Lord, we are anxious and excited to learn what you would teach us through your word as we journey through this life that you have given to us. God, we want it to be the best life that it can possibly be. We want to have the greatest impact that we can possibly have. And Father, when it's all said and done, we would hear those words from you. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now come, come into the inheritance that I have in store for you. In Jesus' name, amen.